and working in the kitchen, and I made friends with uh, everyone in the kitchen, and eventually they found out I was a Christian, so they did everything they could to make me uncomfortable, which was fine. And then there's a, another Christian who started working there, and she shared Christ all the time, so much, so much so that it took one of the other girls who, I'll just say, lives an alternative lifestyle, brought, she came to the dish tank and said, Chris, you are the right kind of Christian. You know why? It's like, well, why is that? Because you never talk about Jesus. <laughs> You're not like this other person who just won't shut up about it. You never say anything. I was like, oh boy, well, thanks for your compliment. I feel so great. Oof. But I think, hopefully I'm growing in that. I think this will help us understand why we should think about sharing our faith a little more, uh, maybe some heart behind it. That's what I'm hoping for. But we're going to be in 11, uh, 19 through 30, right through the end of this chapter. So I'm going to read through the whole thing so we get to, uh, understand the whole context, then we'll walk through it. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except uh, Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today, for bringing us here for keeping us safe on the roads, for uh, protecting us. I'd ask that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, move in us this morning as we uh, ponder this passage, as we work through it, as we ask you to apply it to our lives and teach us what is needed to be known here. Jesus, we thank you for making this all possible on the cross, hanging on the tree, raising again after your death. You look upon us with love and grace this morning. Regardless of what happened on the way here or this week, you love us. I thank you for that. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in our context for today, we're right on the heels of the event where Peter sees the vision of the unclean food being made clean now. And where that's literally so, it also is representing the gospel being opened up to the Gentiles. And if you remember Pastor Tom's definition last week, that's quite broad, just anyone who's not a Jew. 
So the whole rest of the world being opened up to the gospel. Was, I think that would be quite shocking to the Jew of the day. You remember the, that first gospel message, they call it the Proto-Evangelion, to Eve as she's being expelled to the garden, that one day the Messiah will come to crush the, the serpent who tricked you. One day that person will come through your line. And over and over and over, the prophets of old reminded the people of this truth. And through the millennia of suffering, through promised lineage nearly being snuffed out before Egypt and going to Egypt and going through slavery and coming home and battling for the land and finally getting to the point where the Messiah comes and they're told that just like to Jacob and old, that the younger brother will also receive this benefit. It's amazing that this happens, it's how, but how? Luke writes in the beginning of chapter 8, this persecution now that we are on the heels of in uh, 1119, when he says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution, if you remember in chapter 8, just after Stephen is stoned and killed, Saul agrees with what is happening here in this persecution, and all the people then go after the Christians and flush them out of Jerusalem. According to this, they mostly all move north to Cyprus and Antioch and Phoenicia, all north, because of the ravaging that was happening to the church. That Saul, also known as Paul, it's not a pre-salvation, post-salvation name change. It is simply the Hebrew, Aramaic versus Greek and Roman difference, just like Dorcas last week, if you remember, is just a different name to be called it based on the translation. So as Paul comes in before he's saved, persecutes the church, flushes them out, they all move north. And what is interesting to note is where we find ourselves today in the city of Antioch, north of Israel, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. You had, of course, Rome, you had Alexandria, and then you had Antioch, who had about 500,000 people living there. And what I think is very unique about the province of God causing this persecution in Jerusalem is pushing the Greek-speaking Jews back, Jewish Christians, back out of Jerusalem, back to where uh, the context that they know and the language that they speak is the perfect place for the beginning of the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so let's go back and read. I split up into two sections because it was really awkward in three. So we'll go back. Let's read 19 through 24. Through, uh, yes, 24, and then uh, we'll continue. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But then there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, the Hellenists being Greek speakers. It's no longer Greek-speaking Jews, but actual Greek Gentiles that they are ministering to, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came 
and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And I'll finish this out. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great uh, many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So we see that pressure pushes them up north, back to the Greek cities, uh, ruled by the Romans. And what we see as they leave en masse, moving to the Gentile cities, they're no longer around uh, the contemporary Jewish Christians. Now, back on, you could say, their home turf with culture that they're aware of. You see, noted Barnabas goes back, and he's from Cyprus, the island off the coast from Greek uh, Cyprus. So all these Jewish Christians move north and begin to preach to Gentiles for the first time en masse in recorded history. So much so that they were unable to count all the converts, just as they've been doing in Jerusalem. And that begs the question for me, how? And what's interesting is Luke is careful to note the Christians who are from the cities, from Cyrene, which is a North African city. They don't go back home, and then they go to, they go to Cyprus. And these men specifically who have returned to Antioch all begin to speak the language, their first language again. They're all familiar with those cultures again and can speak that first language, that Koine Greek. And they begin to evangelize. You notice they're all unnamed. There's no superstars with them. Barnabas isn't there with them yet. Paul is gone in Tarsus. Peter has not traveled up with them. A bunch of no-named, unrecorded Christians witnessing Christ in their new city. So much so that they cannot keep that record of, of who is saved. So I have two things that I, I wanted to discuss here. First, is the changing of these hearts, and then how God ordains these hearts to be changed. And I think we can read something like this and just gloss by, right? Lots of people were saved. We're used to this because we've been seeing all of church history. Uh, Gentiles are being saved. What do we have to take away from this? Whoop-de-doo. Almost like we're reading the list of names in the Gospels. We just fly through this. And I think that this could do with a misunderstanding of an original heart position, of how are we born, what is our heart like before we are saved that we probably have forgotten about if we've been longer, saved longer than six months and we get lulled back into this life. These are all just famous passages. Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ezekiel 36, 26, he says that he would remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of stone who doesn't care about God. He would change. Famous, Romans 3, 10 through 18. Paul says there's no one righteous or good. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless no one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. 
and the way of peace they have not known, then there's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God, no love of God before their eyes. Of course, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The heart condition of the pre-saved person is without hope, utterly lost, condemned to hell. There's no hope for them on this planet. They don't love God. They don't, they're not interested in God. And I had a professor write up on a, uh, as he was explaining this, he, up on his whiteboard, he was behind him, and he wrote uh, in his professor drawings this big hole, like a grave, and he drew a little guy down there. He said, well, this man's dead. But his buddies are up top with this big life preserver, the big round one. They're just chucking it down there to him, bouncing it off his head, bouncing it off everything, going, just grab a hold and save it. You can save yourself if you grab it. They just keep chucking Of course, he's dead. He can't. There's no coming alive by yourself. And it wasn't, it's not until, as God wrote in Ezekiel, that God gave man a new heart, or what theologians and Paul in Titus 3 5 calls regeneration. Could the the dead man with a new heart see Christ for who he truly is, grab onto the life preserver, and be saved from the pit? All of these Greek Gentiles, at least the people living there, counted up to 500,000. But if this is the major city of commerce in the area, you're going to have millions of people moving through here for sale, for travel as they're heading north or south. Tons of people here who are Gentiles, who are 100% of them going to hell. 100%. The the gospel has not moved up this way yet. They're without hope. It is a uh, completely immoral city. And until this moment, when Stephen is killed, and they flush the Christians out, it was at this moment that we witness today that the Gentiles, our lineage of some sort, begin to be saved. It is right here, around year 42, Dead people from a dead people begin to live as though they are righteous in the eyes of the Father. And that is a miracle. It's a miracle. I don't know if we actually grasp that, but it's something that only God could do. He does it here for the first time with the Gentiles. And they would be saved en masse from their graves. It made me think, too, of how how God has ordained all that to happen. How are hearts being saved from dead graves and then being placed into the living forevermore? How does that happen? And I think it's important for us to consider that the Lord has not ordained that dead people come to life by accident, but through the preaching of the word, through the evangelism of the saints for the salvation of the dead. He has made us the tool in his hand to preach the gospel to the dead, just as we were done, to be saved. And I think it's especially important to consider in this time, because I think that we are becoming less and less connected with one another, let alone one another in the church, with one another in our community and in the area. And I get that introverts exist, and that's fine, I guess, 
We live in a fallen world. There's sin everywhere. People are broken. I love my introverts. I'm sorry. Though for us who live in the city, we drive up to our house, we go inside, and that's where we stay. That's where all the comforts are. That's where our Netflix is. Right? That's where our sister wives show is. That's some people watch. It's where the heat, unless you have a heated garage and maybe you go out there and tinker. It's where the toys are. We drive maybe the kids around town and we go right back to home. We go in and it's by accident that we ever run into someone that we know and it's almost impossible to meet someone we don't know. For those of us who live out in, outside of the city limits, it's even harder. Accidental run-ins are less frequent. We drive at least minutes away from uh, this populated area. You drive up to your house or into your garage, in you go. You have to make, you actually have to make an effort to go walk across and see the neighbor or walk through the woods to see who borders your land. But how long does it go until we make that happen? It could be very well that we never see anyone outside of our immediate circles, like maybe Sunday morning or where we work and who works around us. We drive to work, we drive home, and that's where we stay. And we all do it. It's all a struggle that we have. But does that advance the kingdom of God? I don't think in any significant sense of it at all. And Paul's very clear of how someone becomes a believer. Romans 10, 13 through 17, he, just, he lays it all out. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they then call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So how does someone become a believer? By calling, by believing, after hearing, through preaching, by evangelism, the sharing of the good news of the gospel, which is redundant, by commanding that uh, Christ commands that his believers go out and share that good news with others. Doesn't do it in a cruel way. He did it by doing it first. By dying, raising again on the third day to sit by the Father in heaven. And that by believing the truth and calling on him as king, we will be saved. I say commanded, and I know we, that rubs us the wrong way, but he did in Matthew 28. He says, go therefore and make disciples and baptize them. And this isn't a command with a whip. But this is like you just had the best steak of your life and you said, you got to try this. This is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. Made me think of this story of my dad. You know, I was the only uh, child at the time and you only got one kid so you can buy all the extra stuff. And so they somehow got a hold of this sailboat on Lake Michigan and we lived on the, uh, the, near the coast of Lake Michigan big sailboat and up we go. I'm probably between uh, right around uh, our Jude's age and there was a miscommunication about who had little Chris. Lucky for me. 
And so dad walks into the cabin where my mom is, and uh, he says, well, where is he at? And she said, well, I thought you had him. And I used to think quite cruelly about that, but uh, that happens all the time, right? Uh, there was only one of us, though, so maybe I should reconsider this. And, of course, Dad starts to head back up, and here's a splash, and everything on a sailboat's tied down except the toddler. And so uh, the story goes that he runs to the point of the sailboat, and he's got it all planned, of, of course, right? All dads do. And he runs in this zigzag pattern, and I had... Uh, basically white-haired like our little Jude does. And he said as he looked over the, the boat, he could just, I was still as could be, except my hair was kind of doing the wave in the water. I'm sure that was pretty creepy. But dad was a boiler worker and he physically lifted iron all day. So he grabs onto the edge. He goes over, pulls me by the hair, throws me on the boat. And as he got back up, I was just sitting there looking at him like, hey, great to see you. Thanks for not letting me die today. I think it was with that passion and love for his son that, of course, he was just going all out for it. And in the same way, I think that we could learn from that motivation for why we should put ourselves into situations so that we can save others from what we have been saved from. It takes a purposeful development of relationship to do it. And one might preach from street corners. Uh, I think that typically leads to either your frustration or theirs as we interrupt their day. Uh, J.I. Packer, this famous uh, writer, uh, it's a really tiny book, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And his, he argues that the best way to evangelize, and we're just talking about good versus best, is personal relationships. Building personal relationships in order to share the gospel. And I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but I think one of the best ways to go about this is to put yourself where people will be, right? To make new relationships. And one of the best ways that I saw it done last summer is one of our elders, Ryan, who was coaching Stallions baseball, and he's, old, he's with older teens, which we know how fun all of that can be. Uh, well, older teens like his 13, 14, 15. Okay, so bless your heart for doing that. But think of the opportunity to build relationships that that gives him as he is working with up to 15 teenagers who 50% in this area have great home lives and 50% have terrible home lives, that he gets to be the man who's coaching them, that I don't know if you've ever done athletics, but especially from when I was a teenager, I, don't, I have not forgotten any of my coaches and the impact that they've had on me. Not only does he interact with those 15, then he gets 15 sets of parents that he gets to meet. And not only that, there's a whole club, and then there's a whole organization that he then gets to be known by. And who do you think they're going to if they, need a, if they have a question about the faith? Do, another example I always give is, do you play disc golf? You could be bad at it. That's okay. There's a group out here who disc golfs, and you could get to be known and know them. And the idea is to build gospel relationships over time so that they trust you so that you can share the gospel with them. Though if our hearts are not nurtured by the gospel regarding this, we'll have little interest. But because we do this, like I said, what was first done for us. We're not a product of random processes. Our Lord died upon a cross to make this happen. And one day in heaven, when we go, we'll be able to probably trace ourselves back 
through the Christians to this place in Antioch and the evangelistic explosion that happens here through the preaching of the word, the precious work of Jesus Christ and the power that his gospel has for our lives. All right, so let's, let's go to 25 through 30. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And there's a lot that happens in these uh, 10 to 11 verses. And I, I know it's kind of clunky. We split it up here. It was even worse in three parts. But what we have see happen in this passage is after some time of Barnabas coming and ministering and discipling in the city, after the, all these Gentiles are coming to Christ, after some time, Barnabas remembers about Paul in Tarsus. And it's recorded, he goes and he finds him and he brings him there. Tarsus is where Paul was born. It's where he runs back to after he leaves Jerusalem, after the trouble he caused. Three days of a walk, Barnabas goes, gets him, remembers his unique qualifications, as we see later through the whole book of Acts, to teach and grow this Gentile church. And after a year, prophets, it says, come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And that's not south on the map. That's Jerusalem's up on the hill. They come down to Antioch as a group. And one of them named Agabus stood up, foretold by the Spirit, that there'd be this great famine all over all the world. And what's interesting is that we don't, I think as a church, really know what to do with these prophet guys in the New Testament because of the presuppositions that we have of them in the Old Testament. Because if you're familiar with those guys, mouthpiece of God is what the prophet is. They are the guys who listen, are given words from the Lord, and then they give it to the people. They're the ones who write the Old Testament. The difference between the prophet and the priest is the priest listens to the people and then goes to God. They're the one, these prophets are the ones receiving the direct revelation and then writing it and communicating it. And though all the commentators agree here with these New Testament prophets, these, these are not the apostles, right? And that's where they, we would work this out to say that the equivalent to the prophet in the New Testament are the apostles. And we see them do that work in this ministry here. They are the ones who see Jesus, who are sent out personally by him, who receive the word through the spirit and then speak it to the people in an authoritative way, and then which becomes the scriptures, right? We see that uh, parallel between these two groups, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. So then who is this Agabus? Because Luke says the spirit here told him uh, to share this, that there would be this great famine over all the world, and this took day, place during the days of Claudius. And what's interesting, when you study this and this man, 
there's two times he's mentioned in the book of Acts and where he received something from the Spirit to tell, yet what he says doesn't come exactly true. And so there seems to be these people who are hearing the Spirit, but then are not communicating it in the exact way as though we would expect the Old Testament prophets to do. Because in the Old Testament, if a prophet is false, he's done. You kill him. And you can see the true, prof- the true prophets because what they are saying comes true exactly. And so what seems to happen, and especially this event, is there is a recorded series of smaller famines, and one does come up and hit Israel. The Nile floods, uh, get, ruins the grain. Uh, their shortage is all the way up to Israel. Josephus, the Jewish historian, is recording that people are dying in, Israel, in Jerusalem because of the lack of food which is probably this event that Agabus is talking about. But how do we handle this existence of prophet who uh, isn't 100% true when he is prophesying? Well, if we understand what Old Testament prophets are, New Testament apostles are, they are not, these prophets are not the receivers of direct revelation. And I think, and I checked with Pastor Tom just to make sure we're on the same page, we categorize these prophets in the same way we would categorize the apostles and like the gift of tongues. The apostles do not exist today. They were for a specific time and place and purpose. The gift of tongues, which we would say are languages, one person being somewhere where they can't communicate, being gifted by the Spirit to communicate with someone in a language they don't know was for a specific time and place. And it seems like this under group of prophets that Paul does mention in Ephesians, right, as a list, is for a specific time and place before the co- completion of the New Testament canon is what, where the prophets or these under prophets was for. He, uh, this Agabus in Acts 21, misprophesies what is going to happen with Paul and who arrests him. And that's okay because he's just misinterpreting the spirit and what he needs to communicate. So I just wanted to say, if anybody comes up to you and says they're a prophet, say, okay, great. What does the Lord say? Remind me of it, please. And if he agrees with him, excellent. If he disagrees with the Lord... Say, hit the road and go back to reading your Bible. This is the complete word of God for everything in our life, practice in the church or regular life that we will ever need is here. And this is where, uh, as we were talking with Pastor Tom and all the cult shows that are out and about, this is exactly how they all start as a man who is a prophet and has this special message from the Lord. Says, oh, you don't really have the complete thing. I'm going to tell you. And then off the cult goes. You don't need any of that. This is what you need. Just as tongues, just as apostles ended after the completion of the New Testament canon. I know that's just getting lost in the weeds. Uh, I I thought maybe that someone would uh, maybe think those things about the prophecy. Maybe it was just prophetic. Thanks, Tom. All right. Wasn't prophetic. All right. so, So... Uh, We can talk later if you need to about that. But notice that here, and I think this is the point of really as Luke is drilling deep into the history here, when when the 
headquarters of the church at the time in Jerusalem gets, is about to get hit with a famine. A prophet goes north, tells the Gentiles what is about to happen. A completely separate local church speaks different languages, has completely different backgrounds, one of a plural society who doesn't believe in Christ or Yahweh or, and probably has barely heard of the Bible, and the other are the Jews. Barnabas and Paul collect money, and these Gentiles send it down to the Jewish Christians. There is this co-working in the gospel, this co-supporting, this unity in the church between these local churches because of that. Some people call that mercy ministry. It's a good term. But there is a, a giving heart, a, a gracious heart with our finances and our goods and our gifts and our time that because of what Christ has done for us, that we respond in kind to others. Just as this Antiochian church did here. It's gospel kingdom, gospel-mindedness, gospel culture that we like to say here in action that we get to see. Because if it was hitting Israel, you could be sure that this grain shortage was about to hit Antioch, who was not that far away. A wonderful example of the Christian in a society, especially rural Americans who love to cling to the things that we have earned or built or have, and we forget that the, the Lord has given it to us. And even if we will say, well, the Lord gave it to me, but I earned it, who do you think gave you your strength and your wisdom and your knowledge with your hands or whatever you're doing? It, it's all for the Lord. Christians do this. Certainly first Christian, uh, century Christians do this in response to the life and death and resurrection that was freely given to us as a gift by Christ. And what a wonderful reminder that this text has been for us, I hope, that even though it's very historical and kind of clunky and there's no great like preaching in it that we can just sit and dwell on, it's a recollection of what's happening here because Jesus is good, Jesus is king, Jesus loves you, he's done everything for you that needs to be done, and I hope that that's what we are thinking on and meditating through this week. Thinking about ways we can reach out into the community or design our lives in a way that we can be gospel ministers to a hurting city, a hurting county. The Lord is ready to use you. Okay, would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for this text. Thank you for the heart of Barnabas and Paul and the example that uh, the Antioch church is for us. I think all of us today, unless there is someone from the Jewish faith and background is here, can be grateful for the way that you've decided to not hold the gospel back for only the Jews, but expand it to the Gentile world, to all of us. And that is the reason us here today are saved. And we can say amen to that. We can respond in glad singing and joy and love and giving and receiving and humility. All these things are opened up to, to us because of the work you did for us. 
We've done nothing. We were in the dead pit. We were dead in the pit. Not even realizing we needed to be saved. And you grabbed us and you placed us in righteousness in your son. We thank you, Lord. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.